In the previous chapter, the Israelites have been going through quite a time, and, and we've been seeing in the book of Exodus how the nation of Israel has been on quite a journey, haven't they? Coming out of Egypt, and uh, they've been on, on quite a roller coaster ride so far. We saw last week how they were brought right up in chapter 14 to the Red Sea, feeling like they are trapped, stuck, nowhere to go. Pharaoh's armies coming down, bearing heavily upon them, mountains on either side, the Red Sea in front of them, yet God provides a way, and they come through. Chapter 15 is a great time of singing and rejoicing. The Lord's delivered them. It's great, yet the Lord then brought them through a bit of a, a trial. Right after coming through the waters of the Red Sea, they come upon the waters at Marah that are, are bitter. And what happens after praising and worshiping God, they begin to complain, they begin to whine. How quick that singing turned very sour as they began to be kind of products of their circumstances. And as they began to let their circumstances begin to, to get them down, was God not leading? Was he not providing? Yeah, he certainly was. But the Israelites were going through one of the many tests there that they would have to go through. You see, God through that trial was going to teach them a bit about themselves. Each trial, understand this, reveals a little bit about what's really going on inside of us. Every trial becomes an opportunity like an x-ray to kind of examine our hearts to see what's really going on in us. Israel was singing enthusiastically one minute, they complaining miserably the next. And you see, it was these tests and trials that began to reveal to them that they still needed to trust the Lord, to walk by faith and commit their ways to him, to know that God was still at work, God was leading, and God would take care of them. And so it is with us. We go through trials. We go through testing. None of us, I'm sure, love testing. Don't tell me you do because I know you're lying. And I don't love tests. Tests have never been my strong suit in school. Still don't enjoy tests. But the Lord allows us to go through testings to reveal to us What's really going on inside? What, what are we having come out of us? What areas need work? We're like sponges, you see. Until we're squeezed, we don't really know what's inside, right? See, if life were sweet all the time, we'd have no desire to really press in to the Lord, to really seek desperately the Lord, to really rely upon the Lord. If everything was just smooth sailing through Red Seas, we would never need to look to the Lord as Israel did before the Red Seas parted. Trials cause us to draw close to God and begin to lean heavily on Him and trust in Him as we're to be doing daily. As they come through, the waters of Mar, then the Lord brings them to Elam. Another picture of that fruitful Christian experience because Elam's that place of comfort. The, the, the 12 waters, uh, wells of water, 70 palm trees, this luscious place that the Lord provided for them to find that rest and encouragement in them. And as we get into chapter 16, we're gonna see Another test that's being given to the Israelites here. Let's look at chapter 16, verse 1. It says, And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. <laughs> if there were any signs, you know, you're entering, the, it's like, take a detour, don't go there, right? Let's avoid the wilderness of sin. But here's where the Lord is leading them. Remember, the Lord is leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. 
The Lord brings him into the wilderness of sin. And it's between Elam and Sinai on the, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron there in the wilderness. You see that there? Now remember, like I said, Elam was a beautiful oasis. Right after trying times, the Lord brings them to refreshing times. That oasis there, wells of water, palm trees, just this place where you could just vacation and seek some some refuge and refreshment but now they continue their journey and they come to the wilderness of sin isn't that the way that we often experience things we have great times of refreshment in the lord thinking that oh man we're never going to sing again we're on a constant high everything's going great man we are never going to go through the valley again suddenly boom we're in the wilderness of sin where we're getting tempted we're getting tested we're getting tried and what oftentimes happens, we begin to whine, we begin to complain, we begin to wonder, Lord, where are you? See, these experiences are not meant to hurt you or destroy, but they're meant to show you that we can't be living off of or relying on mountaintop experiences all the time. These are times we need to do life. There are times that we need to do life in the wilderness. But in order to deal with the highs and the lows of life, we need to be daily grounded in the word of God and know the God of this word. And that's where chapter 16 becomes such a, a wonderful lesson and a fitting picture for us of how we're not to be just relying upon the mountaintop experiences, trying to hang out there, but to know that when we are people of the word and knowing the God of this word, we're able to handle the ups and the downs that life is going to throw at us oftentimes. It gives us that solid foundation by which we can handle the highs and the lows that we're going to encounter in this life. See, Israel has been on the move now for, for one month, all right? It tells us that it's in the, in the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Uh, the second month that they, they departed from the, in the first month, they've been on this journey for one month now. And it's quite possible that the Israelites were not even getting hungry at this time. They've got lots of livestock with them. In fact, later on, they're going to be complaining over not having water to cause their livestock to drink. They've got animals. They've got, <laughs> they've got an abundance of food with them, right? They're not struggling for food. They're not hungry at this time. It's possible they began to see just the barrenness of the wilderness and thought, man, their, their livestock are going to begin to die off from lack of food. They're not hungry, but they're wondering what's going to happen down the road here. Now, again, they've seen the miraculous hand of the Lord many times already, haven't they? I mean, all through their time in, in Egypt, especially as God was getting ready to deliver them out and the, the 10 plagues that came, leading them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, God, God has already shown himself strong on their behalf, miracle after miracle. Is it too much now to ask the Lord to help them in this time? But Israel isn't looking through that lens of faith. And as a result, what do they do? They begin to complain. They became masters in the art of grumbling. All through their time of journeying in the wilderness leading up to the promised land, they became masters in the art of grumbling. It reminds me of a story of a monk that joined a monastery. He took a vow of silence. After the first year, his superior called him in and asked, do you have anything to say? The monk replied, food bad. Another year, 
went by, took that, again, vow of silence for that year, and he was brought in by a superior after that second year. And he was asked, what do you have to say this time? The monk said, bed hard. Another year went by, and again, he was called in before a superior. When asked if he had anything to say, he responded, I quit. His superior said, it doesn't surprise me a bit. You've done nothing but complain since you've been here. <laughs> now, listen, our complaining is never a result of outward circumstances, but rather, they really reveal what's going on inwardly. That's where our complaining and grumbling comes from. The Bible says, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. By faith, we can give thanks no matter what we go through because we have a loving God who is for us, who's going to see us through, who's going to be faithful, and he's shown himself faithful time and time again in our lives. We don't give thanks for every trial and test we go through. I certainly don't, but I can give thanks in everything because I know God is with me. He's never going to leave me nor forsake me. I know God is going to be faithful to lead me through. He's going to be faithful to bring you through every trial and difficulty. We can give thanks. And a thankful attitude is not to be circumstantial, but it's to be fundamental as we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't have to rely upon what we see around us or what's being done for us. We have to look to God, who is simply for us. See, when we begin to doubt the Lord and we stop walking by faith, we allow fear and panic to creep into our life. Joy begins to be squeezed out and we begin to be compulsive complainers. Trust in God, though, and, and know that he is taking care of you because it's going to relieve a whole lot of stress and grumbling in our lives. Notice, too, it was the whole congregation of Israel that complained against Moses and Aaron. It says it right there in, in verse 2. The whole congregation of children of Israel. And, and they're numbering, at, at least probably uh, estimates have 2 million, if not more. Could you imagine two million people heckling you? <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, Mike, this is heavy. It's hard enough when you got a household, right? Kids that are complaining and whining all the time, driving in a van and they're whining. You're like, ah, I can't take it anymore. Two million people whining and complaining at you? That's not very enjoyable for sure. And the children of Israel, verse three, said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Do you see what the children of Israel are doing? They're longing for the days of when they were in Egypt. But they are looking at it through distorted eyes. And the devil loves to distort the past and make it much more appealing than it ever was. And we begin to look fondly oftentimes at the past because we forget how bad it was. We compare it to maybe what we're going through now when we always feel the pressure of the moment which causes us to look differently at the situations we've had in the past. And the devil loves to distort that. You ever look back on a time in your life and thought, oh, it's so wonderful compared to what you're having to go through in the present. You may be struggling in your marriage and you think, man, did I make a mistake breaking up with my ex-girlfriend? 
and you begin to look longingly for the good old days, but you forget your ex-girlfriend was a basket case, emotionally unstable, that drove you nuts, and you just remember those good moments she was cooking dinner for you, but you failed to remember, I couldn't wait to get away from her. But then suddenly, in comparison, you go, hmm, I wonder what she's up to. Maybe those days were better. The devil, you see, has a way of twisting things around deceptively to make you think the former things were better. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. We have to be so careful that we don't allow the devil to begin to twist things around, to cause us to begin to complain regarding the present that we're in. How we need to move forward in the Lord and understand that the grass is often greener on the other side of the fence because that's where the septic field lies. (laughs) And... That's what the devil often does. There's a load of crap sitting there, and he's saying, look at how green this is over here. And we're going, no, I couldn't wait to leave that. I couldn't wait to leave that relationship, that job, and yet now the devil makes you think, oh, man, you made a mistake. It was so much better there. No. I'm going to continue on and say, Lord, every day with you is a day that can just get better and better. As I look to you, trust in you, as I lean heavily on you, as... Israel is being called to learn and grow in here. They thought they had it good in Egypt. They were slaves, baking bricks in the beating hot sun, being tortured there. It was no pleasant picnic for them, but now they're going, oh, we had it so good. No, you didn't. You couldn't wait to escape out of that. Don't let the devil twist things around. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'll rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quote every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. You know, it's amazing that the Lord doesn't get angry at Israel, right? The Lord said, oh, they're complaining and whining. They're being babies. You know what? I'm going to provide for them. God doesn't say, what a bunch of idiots you are. Don't you see that I've already done all these things for you? Why would you need, doesn't do that. Behold, I'll rain bread from heaven for you. I'm gonna take care of you. God's grace is so boundless. Isn't that wonderful? Praise the Lord for that. But in all of this, again, there's gonna be an opportunity for testing for Israel. God's not just gonna, you know, provide this and, and, and just say, you know what? Don't think about anything. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to take care. He's going to take care of them, but it's going to provide an opportunity to, to kind of test them still in that. It's going to show whether Israel will trust God and obey him or lean on their own understanding. There's going to be two requirements that will be given here. First of all, pick only what you need for that day when the manna, when the bread from heaven comes. Secondly, on the sixth day, pick twice as much and don't pick anything on the seventh day. Two requirements that are going to be given to them. Well, we'll see how they do with that. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen 
When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full, for the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. So first of all, check this out. God hears their complaints and he graciously comes to their aid, but he works in a way to demonstrate his glory. This, again, is not because Israel is so good, but because God is so good. And he moves the affairs of this world along in our very lives as well for the glory of God. God is a sovereign God, and he's carrying on his purposes for one reason, for the glory of God. He's at work, and he's orchestrating all things. That's why when we encounter times of struggle or need, look to what God is going to do in it and through it. Because he's in control. He's at work. He works through these things ultimately to reveal his glory. So when those trials come, say, God, I can't wait to see what you are up to and what you're going to do in this for your glory. Help me to walk closely with you, to follow obediently with you and see what you're going to do in this. Now, Moses reveals something here, a very fundamental truth. When we complain, we're not complaining against our situations and circumstances. We're not complaining against other people that might be ruffling our feathers or bothering us. We are complaining against God. Israel is thinking, Moses and Aaron, you're to blame. You're the problem, guys. And they complain against Moses and Aaron, but Moses says, you know what? Who are we? Hey, what are you getting upset at us for? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Every time we complain, we are ultimately saying, God, I'm not happy with what you're doing. I'm not happy with you allowing this brother as problematic as they might be, or that sister as much as of an irritant as they might be. I'm not happy that you're allowing them to do this to me. I'm not happy, God, that you've allowed this to happen in my life or that situation to come my way. I'm not happy, but ultimately every complaint is against the Lord because we're not trusting in his sovereignty and in his plans and his purposes that he has unfolding even in the midst of those trials and circumstances that come our way. We find fault with him. When we complain, we're essentially saying, I'm not happy with what you have allowed here, God. A grumbling heart really reveals a problem with trusting God. That's why, that's what the Israelites had to learn here in these lessons and tests that God was taking them through. They had to learn to simply trust the Lord. Throughout their journey to the promised land, they're going to continue to struggle with complaining. So much so that an entire generation would be denied entrance into Canaan. What was the sin that led them in complaining and being excluded from the promised land? Anybody? What was the great sin? Pardon me? Lack of faith, unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 19 says it was because of their unbelief that they were not allowed to enter in. Unbelief, not trusting the Lord. Complaining when they should have been trusting. That's what Israel had to learn here. The word grumbling hardly does the Israelites justice. 
Some translations have complaining, some have grumbling. The Hebrew word was not designed to express a disgruntled complaint. Quite the contrary. It described an open rebellion. When the people murmured against Moses, it was mutiny against Almighty God. They were repudiating their relationship with him. In fact, they wished that they were dead. The way they figured, if they were going to die anyway, it would have been better to die back in Egypt. Starving in the desert was a fate worse than death. In effect, they were saying that they wished they had never been saved. Wow. How often do we find ourselves complaining over our situations, our circumstances, our relationships, instead of going to the Lord and saying, God, in everything I can give thanks because you're with me, you're leading me through, you saved me, give me the promise of eternal life, You've allowed me to encounter this for a purpose. Help me to glorify you because it's all about the glory of God. Verse 9 says, Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. If the Lord hears our complaints, how much more does he hear our prayers of need and concerns that we pour out before him out of a heart of just trust in the Lord? He hears us. Now, God's glory, again, is that reputation, his honor, that that weightiness of his character, to know that he is the Lord. And to give him the honor that's due him. That's giving him glory. And, and he's calling Israel to look and to see simply the glory of the Lord in the cloud. Remember that cloud that, that led them by day, that pillar fire by night. We don't know if that cloud, if there was something different, if maybe it began to thunder and lightning from that cloud where it just got their attention and gave them a sense of the awe of God. We don't know exactly what was happening, but they looked and they could see and behold the glory of the Lord to recognize it's all about him. It really is all about God. Are you living your life with that awareness that it's all for you, God? My life doesn't exist for me. It's not about my comforts. It's not about my my happiness. It's about your glory, God. It's all for you. And when we live life that way, we begin to find that the, the trials that we go through become less of a concern or less of a bother to us because we're living with that higher calling in mind. It's for the glory of God. Verse 11, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Verse 16. 
This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons that every man take for those who are in his tent. God provided two great miracles that would reveal God's glory and power. He brought quail in the evening to come down into where they were camped, and then he provided manna, that bread from heaven, in the morning for them. Now, there's always been, right, people that try to explain away the miraculous by attributing it to some natural occurrence, right? We, we talked about that with the Red Sea. There's always people that say, well, you know, certain times there might be this big wind that comes, all these things that they try to explain away in a very natural way, the miracles. They, they don't deny that those things happened, but it wasn't just the divine, you know, miraculous of God. Now, quail, we understand, are migratory birds. Each year they, they pass over this area of the Sinai in the spring and in the fall and do the long distance of the flight that they're on migrating back. They often become so weird that they would come and rest on the ground. It could be easily caught by hand. Egyptian paintings show people catching quail by throwing nets over the bushes that they were nesting in. So many say this is just a very natural phenomenon that we see oftentimes. And, and we've got uh, historical depictions of just quail being caught very easily. So this could have been very natural, people say. Yet these quail came at just the right time that God said. In the evening, quail are going to come. They came at the time that God said. Plus, there's so much quail that it was enough to provide enough meat for this numerous bunch that Israel was. I mean, that's a miraculous feed to give food and meat for all those people. Psalm 78, verse 26 to 28 says that he caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power, he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl, like the sand of the seas. And he let them fall in the midst of the camp all around their dwellings. It's not just some natural thing that happened. This was the Lord directing and ordering these quail and bringing them to rest right there around the camp of Israel, all around their dwellings. Now with the manna, many theories have emerged to explain what this potentially was. Now we read about it here and Israel's all going, what is it? That's where we get the word manna. It comes from the Hebrew man. Uh, manna, they're, they're going, what is it? We don't, we don't understand. It was something so, I, I think it was very much like a Krispy Kreme donut, I think. <laughs> I, I honestly believe we'll have some of that in heaven. It's going to be good. But one commentator, um, Reichen and Hughes, wrote, and they, they quoted from some other commentators saying, F.S. Bodenheimer claimed that the liquid honeydew excretion of a number of, uh, how do you say that word? I was going to ask my wife that. Cicadas? Cicadas. Cicadas. Okay, see. Cicadas, thank you. Cicadas, plant lice, and scale insects speedily solidifies by rapid evaporation. From remote times, the resulting sticky and oftentimes granular masses have been collected and called manna. Another widely accepted view is that the manna was identical with the lichen, Lecanora esculenta. This lichen grows on rocks and produces pea-sized globules, which are light enough to be blown about by the wind. They are well known for their sweetness and are often collected by the natives of Central Asia. But at present, the most popular view associates manna simply with the tamarisk. Now, these explanations 
do not balance with the biblical account that we have seen here in chapter 16. First, we see that this manna came for 40 years. For 40 years, they were fed daily, minus the Sabbath, manna from heaven. Many of these natural phenomena that I just read about here were seasonal. It didn't happen all the time. It wouldn't sustain them daily over these years. Second, if this was such a natural occurrence, why were they all asking, what is it? If it was natural, they would have been familiar with it. They would have been, ah, oh, I know what this is. This is awesome. We can eat this, guys. Take as much as you can because it's seasonal. We're not going to be able to. Have... They don't do that, though. They're, they're wondering what this is. Third, this manna rotted the day after. Unlike these excretions that would continue to last, they wouldn't, they wouldn't rot right away. The only way to look at this was to see this as a genuine divine miracle of God. It's the only way to see this here. And it's referred to in Scripture this way. Psalm 78, 24 calls this bread of heaven. Not bread of the earth under a natural occurrence. It's bread of heaven. He, he calls it 78, Psalm 78, verse 25, uh, angels' food. Right? And this is right from heaven. Again, angels' food. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 3 calls this the spiritual food. In other words, like this supernatural food that comes for them. Only from God. It's a miracle. The Lord was going to meet their physical needs by providing this manna. But more than that, he wanted to teach them these spiritual lessons through. And we're going to get into some of those. But Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 says, So he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. See that testing here? He's allowed you to hunger. And he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. This eternal lesson would be taught, or that would be taught, was for Israel to learn to have a daily dependence upon God, to lean heavily on the Lord for their sustenance, for their daily bread, for all that they needed. Nourishment, not just physically, but spiritually. Man doesn't live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, it tells us that as they came and, and gathered this manna, they were to take an omer each. Now, some of you might be wondering what an omer is. It tells us in verse 36, if you flip over there, it says, now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So that settles it there for us um, to know. That's how big, how much they need to collect. Should help you out a bit. An omer um, was around two quarts uh, or six pints. In fact, Somebody said if the, if the children of Israel numbered even 2 million, which is a conservative number to come to, let's say there are 2 million people, God would have provided 4,500 tons of bread daily or enough to fill 10 trains with 30 boxcars each. That's how much manna would have been needed, how much bread would have been needed to feed these people. Our God is a God of abundance, isn't he? Well, let's continue on in verse 17. Then the children of Israel did so, and they gathered, some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. 
So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. So as the manna came, the Israelites did what they were instructed to do for the most part, not completely, but some of them felt they needed to keep some of it until the next morning. So as to make sure they're provided for. So they're called to take what you need for that day and you're to use it. Don't try to hold any of it over. Some of them did. And when they went the next morning to look at their supply, it was rotten. It stank and it began to grow worms. Not fun. You see, what they were needing to learn, again, was to live with a daily dependence on the Lord. Don't store up. Don't hold on to what you received last week or yesterday from the Lord. Come and receive a daily refreshment and strength from the Lord. The manna that was kept began to breed worms and stink. That's a definite picture of the word of God with this manna. We can at times try to go a while on a couple verses that we read last week or, you know, yesterday and think, well, I had a great devotion a few days ago. That should carry me. We soon find out that we can get very wormy. We can begin to stink or have a stinky attitude as a result of just not being daily in the Word, not having a fresh feeling from Him. Instead of living lives of fruitfulness that comes by abiding in Jesus and His Word, we can show signs of rottenness if we're not being fed daily by the Word of God. What the lesson is just so clear and profound and wonderful for us here. And and so often, as Christians, we think we can get by from Sunday to Sunday and just continue on through the week and we wonder why we're fighting against the flesh, why we're becoming irritable, why we've got a stinky attitude, why there's just some kind of rottenness coming out of us. It's because we're not spending time with the Lord as we ought to. And when they all just get charged up on Sunday, it'll be great. And then we try to ride out the rest of the week. And we're struggling. And notice it was something that had to be done early. Because notice what we read there. If they waited, it says that when the sun became hot, it melted. Verse 21. The heat of the day began to erode it. If they waited, it'd be gone. How the lesson for us also is how great I'm not gonna and I'm not gonna get legalistic on this I'm not gonna burden people but what a a beautiful thing it is to start our day with the Lord and his word and I'll tell you it's not an easy thing for some of us I I don't I don't naturally pop out of bed like some of you might Get very, I get very irritable when I hear about, yeah, I was up at 5 a.m. this morning, couldn't sleep, I just got up and, you know, had a coffee, mowed the lawn, had my devotions before 6 o'clock, and I'm like, I hate you. <laughs> some people just are just very much like that. For some, it's a discipline. And that's the thing, is that so much of our, our Christian walk is a discipline because our flesh just completely bucks against all these things that are of the Lord, all these things that are good for us, our flesh is like, no, 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 don't do that. 
no, just stay in bed a little longer. Oh, it's okay. You'll, you'll have time. And then we hit that snooze, the alarm, and suddenly we realize, oh my goodness, I'm going to be late for my meeting. We jump out of bed, and we're trying to grab, you know, our daily bread real quick and read a, a paragraph from that, and we're running out the door and trying to get to our, our appointment or meeting or our, our job, and we're just fighting through, and yet when we find, oh man, I just take time to get up in the morning and just spend with the Lord, and again, disciplining yourself to do so, just that refreshment you receive, that nourishment you get from the Lord, just spending time in his word and hearing from him and praying, how it just begins to set that day in order. It is such a beautiful thing. And they're called to get up and to do that in the morning before the heat of the day begins to zap away all the, the, the strength and in, in that, in that energy that you have to do that. We read throughout God's word. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. The psalmist is like, Lord, I, I need you as much as my flesh longs for water. As, as that, that desire of thirst comes over me, Lord, that's what I have towards you, how I need you. Mark 135, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Before daylight. <laughs> Psalm 143, 8, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. For in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. What a beautiful thing it is to just take that time to be with the Lord before we get on with the other demands of the day. Greatest and most important thing you can do that day is to spend time with Jesus. And yeah, it might be a discipline, but it's a discipline that comes with great rewards and blessings. Verse 23, then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said, Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. And Moses said, eat that today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. So we see now the Sabbath is introduced for the first time in God's word right here in Exodus 16. This is the first mention of the Sabbath. It's not, been, it's not been put in the law yet. They don't have the law. They haven't reached Mount Sinai yet where Moses is going to go up and receive the, the, the two tablets of the commandments to keep the Sabbath day. They don't have that yet. But So here we see it introduced. And that Sabbath was to be a day of rest, rejuvenation, and, and refocus on the Lord. Many, you know, have a real misconception of the sabbath it becomes for some a very legalistic thing where it's like i i can't do anything on the sabbath i can't you know uh turn on the tv or i can't do this and it just becomes a legalistic thing or for some it becomes just an excuse to do not to do anything just be lazy lounge around on the lawn chair you know and get some rest not that any of those things are wrong but we can have those misconceptions of the Sabbath. But as Jesus said, 
Mark 2, verse 27, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God's given us an opportunity for us to receive rest. He didn't say, you need to fulfill something in the Sabbath. He didn't make man for the Sabbath. Sabbath is made for man to be a blessing and a time of rest for us. It's an opportunity for you to cease your regular routine. And God's always developed that order of six and one. Created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. He had a Sabbath. He's, he's put this kind of in place of this principle of six and one. Having that time where you stop the routine and you take time to rest. And you know what happens with people that are just work, 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 and no time of rest. They begin to come apart. And what we're called to do is to come apart to Jesus. Withdraw from the regular things and press into Jesus. And if we're not taking time to come apart to him, we're going to find ourselves falling apart and we see that happening with those that are workaholics and they just get so stressed out and, and just crash. Lord says, here's a principle that needs to be followed that's going to be a blessing to you. Be refueled, be recharged, be refocused on the Lord. Verse 27, now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in the place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Krispy Kreme, don't it? There it is. But it's sad to see how stubborn we can be, right? Because here they are. They're, they're told by the Lord, take two times what you need on the sixth day, and the seventh day is going to be fine. It's not going to go rotten. I'm going to miraculously provide for you. But yet there's people going on the seventh day. I, I better just make sure because I don't know if this is going to last for me. What I took yesterday, it was going to last for me today. I better go and check on And they go and there's nothing there. And the Lord's just like going, guys, told you, you don't need to do that. I'm going to provide for you. You're going to take what you on the sixth day, two times as much, and it's going to sustain you. It's going to carry over the Sabbath day that you can have that day of rest and break the routines. It's sad how often people go looking for sustenance and fulfillment in places that they're not going to find it. In places where God says, you will come up empty every time. You will find nothing that's going to satisfy you there. How often people are, are going to the things of the world to find nourishment, sustenance, when God says, all that you need is found right here. Follow me. Carry out what I have for you, and you're going to be satisfied and find contentment in him. Verse 32, then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. Verse 34, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan 
Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So this manna, Moses is told to take some and, and put it there in, in that, um, fill an omer with it, and it's going to end up getting put in the Ark of the Covenant when that's going to be built. Along with, in the Ark of the Covenant, would be the, the two tablets of the commandments and the rod of Aaron that budded, and it'd be that kind of memorial of all that God has done for them. But this manna, notice that, it would sustain them in their wilderness journey until they move in the promised land for 40 years. God's going to provide so miraculously every day, minus the Sabbath, for them. And then after they come to the promised land, they're never going to eat manna again. It's, it's going to cease. But God's going to take care of all that they need. Now, the disciples asked Jesus a question when the multitudes were following him. And they were all getting hungry. They weren't taking much of a break to eat. And in Mark 8, 4, they said, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Interesting. Jesus then gave a great message about himself that's recorded in John chapter 6. Turn over there with me, John chapter 6. Because here in John chapter 6, Jesus went on to describe himself as the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And the manna of Exodus 16 has a wonderful picture and fulfillment in Jesus as the bread of life. Look at John 6, verse 26. And we're going to read a few verses here. John 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers, they ate the man in the desert, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Look at verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Well, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Let me just say, before people begin to tune this out online and go, they're teaching cannibalism there. Oh my goodness. Jesus is not implying to literally eat his flesh and blood. This would be completely against the law, abhorrent thing to do. Jesus is saying, you have to receive me to yourself. You have to take me in. You have to appropriate my life to yours if you are going to experience true life and eternal life. So with the manna that we read in Exodus 16... We have some wonderful pictures of that manna. First of all, the manna explains who Jesus is. It speaks of his humility. The manna was small and fine as frost, it says in Exodus 16, verse 14. Fine as frost. Jesus entered the world as a fragile baby, clothed in humility. Jesus himself said, I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus came very humbly. It speaks of his eternality. The manna, it says in verse 14 of Exodus 16, that it was round. And that circle speaks of eternity. It has no beginning and no end. It just keeps going. The Jews knew what Jesus was saying when he spoke to them and said, I am. They took up stones to stone because they knew he was declaring himself to be God. That he was fully God, eternal, full deity. It speaks of his holiness as well. Verse 31 says that the manna was white. It speaks of purity and sinlessness. It was, speaks of his sweetness. Verse 31 says it tasted like honey. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. The waters of Mara, our bitter problems, become a whole lot sweeter when we bring Jesus into it. And it speaks of his nourishment. The Israelites ate of this manna for 40 years. Jesus is all we need to truly sustain our lives. As John 6 verse 51 says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He will live forever. This manna sustained them. Secondly, the manna shows how Jesus came. Well, first of all, it came from heaven. The manna wasn't something they could make or brought in from somewhere else. It was a complete gift from God. Jesus Christ, he says, also came from heaven. He was not created or made. He was God's eternal son, a gift to hungry sinners. That manna came at night. The manna came when it was dark, speaking of the darkness of the world that Christ had to come into. And he came to be that light that would shine in the darkness, exposing sin and illuminating the way. It also, the manna came on the dew. The manna was not made dirty or is defiled, for the dew created a blanket for that manna to rest on. 
Jesus was not defiled through human conception, but was conceived of the Holy Spirit through a virgin. He was completely clean and holy, sinless, perfect. And that manna fell in the wilderness. In the wilderness, the, the barren place, filled with barren people, which is exactly the kind of people and place that Jesus came into. And a, and a people that he came to rescue. He came to breathe life into man, to barren man, and give them hope. In that man, he came to a rebellious people. Man was given to a complaining group of people. Yet we too were dead in sin, following the course of this world. We were doing nothing to earn that. It was completely given out of the grace of God. It's by his mercy that he made us alive. And that manna fell right where they were, right? Came right where they were. They didn't have to search for the manna. They didn't have to jump through any hoops to get it. It was right there in front of them. Jesus is right there for you. You don't have to go on a search to find him. Psalm 145 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Acts 2 verse 21, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't have to call to search for him or find him. Jesus, where are you? He's right there. Call out to him. And he's there. He comes right to where you are. Thirdly, the man reveals how we need to respond to Jesus. First of all, we must feel the need. People need to realize that they're hungry, that they're lacking. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone out and gathered manna. They wouldn't have gone for it. People today need to realize that there's a need spiritually that can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. No substitutes or counterfeit quenchers are going to help. They need the true living bread from heaven. They must feel the need. Secondly, we must bow down. Now, the manna didn't just fall into their hands, right? It fell on the ground, and they need to bend down and pick it up. Many today are, are unwilling to bend or bow down to the lordship of Jesus. Pride has kept them from repenting of their sin and experiencing that forgiveness that's freely offered to them. They're not willing to say, I don't, I, I don't want to give up my life. I don't want to bow down to them. I want to be the Lord of my life. We must bow down. Thirdly, we must take for ourselves. The Jews were not satisfied when they sat and watched others enjoy the manna. They weren't just looking off going, oh, that's so awesome. I'm so filled just seeing everybody gathering manna for themselves. They had to take it for themselves. Likewise, people today cannot rely on what others are doing or saying to them. We can't just know about Jesus. Every person has to respond and receive Jesus inwardly by faith personally. That's what Jesus meant in John 6, 40, 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up the last day. He's saying, let me be a part of you. Let me be in control. Jesus' life will sustain us till we reach our promised land, which is heaven. And we must do it early. The manna disappeared when the sun came out and the day became hot. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Now is the day of salvation. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Time will run out for many people. It's not something we can put off. A time of judgment is coming, and you can be spared of that heat by receiving Jesus today. And we must continue to feed on him. It'd be a crazy thing to think, you know what? I've had a great breakfast on Monday. I don't have to have breakfast anymore this week. As great as it was. You're going to need to eat again. 
In the same way, we need to continually feed on Jesus daily. How do we do that? By reading, studying, meditating on his word. Peter said after Jesus gave this message about him being the bread of life, Peter said in John 6, verse 68, you have the words of eternal life. See, the word of God is more than just words put down on a paper. It's the living word of God. It's the very life of Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. When we pour ourselves into the word of God, we are looking at Jesus. We are hearing from Jesus. We are receiving from Jesus. This is a living word of God. And we must continue to feed on him. The manna teaches us many lessons. And I pray that we'll be those that are seeking the Lord daily. Not relying on what others do. Not relying on what we might have heard or received last week or yesterday. But daily saying, Jesus, I need you. I need that daily sustenance and nourishment from you. Help me to take that time before the day gets busy to spend with you and receive from you. All right, let's pray. Yeah, worship team can come up too and we'll close the song. Lord, we thank you that we have such a great living word here that we get to receive from. We get to see you in it. We get to hear from you. And thank you for pictures like we see in Exodus 16. Lord, of how you fed the Israelites in the wilderness. But what a great picture that is for us of how we need to daily feed on you and receive from you. Thank you, Lord, that you are indeed enough. You're all that we need. So, Lord, may we take time to hear from you and receive from you, to be in your word, allow your word to rest in us and to nourish us throughout the day. Lord, may we not get into ruts and be content with what has happened previously, but may we daily see the need for that. And help us, Lord, to trust you on this journey we're in. Lord, when trials come and difficulty hits us, Lord, help us not to complain and be bitter. Let us walk by faith and not by sight, trusting you because you are in control. You're, you're allowing all these things, Lord, ultimately for your purposes, which all leads to your glory. And God, we exist for the glory of God. So when these things come, let us not whine, complain. Let us look to you and say, God, what are you going to do through this? Help me to be that vessel that you work through to bring about your glory. And let us receive that with excitement and joy as we walk with you, God. So strengthen us, Lord, strengthen this church, every person here tonight. Thank you for our time together. Would you refresh us in you, Jesus? Would you lead us closer to you and use us, Lord, for your glory. We pray in your name, amen.